The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Quantum Connection, exploring health, science, and spirit with your host, Marina Rose, QDNA. From the smallest cellular structure to the broadest life experiences, every thought, every belief, and every action has the power to transform every aspect of our lives because reality at its core is made manifest through consciousness and its direct connection to the quantum field. It's time to remove the self-imposed boundaries created by your reality and discover practical, everyday tools to transform your life. Now, here is your host, Marina Rose, QDNA. Welcome, everybody, to the Quantum Connection radio show. I'm your host, Marina Rose, QDNA, and I want to thank you all for tuning in and listening. You have now entered the quantum field of the quantum connection, the intracellular holographic matrix where we make the impossible possible using qDNA, quantum DNA acceleration, which combines the cutting-edge science in epigenetics, neuroplasticity, DNA reprogramming, and quantum field theory to assist you to achieve quantum growth in health, life, and business. During this show, We will explore health, science, and spirit to accelerate your path to extraordinary living with some of the world's most influential thought leaders sharing their insights on how to optimize your health and well-being. Today, our guest is a brilliant woman, Sharon Begley. Sharon, thank you so much for accepting my invitation to be on my show, and I would like to tell the audience a little bit about how extraordinary you are. This is what I do know about you. You are a distinguished, award-winning, best-selling author, an acclaimed science writer. You push the boundaries of your readers with all the different beautiful areas of science that you do cover. You are the senior writer at the STAT, the life science publication of the Boston Globe. Previously, you were the senior health science correspondent at Routers. Prior to that, you were the science editor and the science columnist at Newsweek, where you covered neuroscience, genetics, cosmology, astronomy, physics, anthropology, psychology, and other basic science. You were also a contributor writer at the magazine and its website, The Daily Beast. Before that, you were the science columnist at the Wall Street Journal, where you inaugurated the paper's science journal. You have a long list of illustrious awards. I'd like to mention two of them. And if you'd like to see all the awards Sharon has won, please go to her website, www.sharonbegley.com. 
You are the recipient of numerous, numerous awards for your writing, including an honorary degree from the University of Carolina for communicating science to the public and the Public Understanding of Science Award from the San Francisco Exploratorium. You are a science writing expert, a keynote speaker, of course, on science writing, neuroplasticity, science literacy, including at Yale University, the Society of Neuroscience, American Association for the Advancement of Science, and the National Academy of Sciences. If that's not enough, you are also the co-author of The Emotional Life of Your Brain with Dr. Richard J. Davidson, the co-author of The Mind and the Brain with Dr. Jeffrey Schwartz. You are the author of Train Your Mind, Change Your Brain, which is what we're going to be talking about today. Train Your Mind, Change Your Brain. However, before we get started on that, Sharon, is there anything else you would like to share about yourself with the audience. Thank you so much for that warm introduction, Marina. If uh, we had video, um, your audience would see me blushing. Um, <laughs> I would just um, say that I am only as good as my material, and this has been a wonderful period to cover science, um, in particular genetics and neuroscience, because those fields, as you and your listeners know, have just exploded. So being able to describe some of the advances that have been made there um, has been just really a treat. Fantastic. What a beautiful answer. Lovely. You just are exquisite the way you transmit science to the world. So why I invited you as my guest is that I'm fascinated with the work that you're doing. I would like to know why you are so curious about science, neuroscience, genetics, physics, anthropology, psychology, and broadcasting it out to the world. What makes you tick? Probably nothing terribly different from anyone else who's curious. Um, I think everybody's favorite subject, favorite topic is themselves. And when we say that in terms of science and ask what can explain who we are, how we got to be who we are, what we might become, you're really talking about neuroscience and genetics. Um, my own academic training was in physics, which I still love, but it's the life sciences that have really made extraordinary breakthroughs in the time that I've been a journalist. Um, and uh, the reason that I was attracted to neuroplasticity, which, as you mentioned, was the topic of one of my books, it was a little bit of a reaction against the message that a lot of genetics research seemed to be sending out to people, namely that who we are is very, very strongly determined by the genes we inherit from our parents, which seemed to leave very little room for self-determination. So when I stumbled upon the research that was going on in neuroplasticity, that seemed to offer a fascinating and very, very powerful counterforce to the message of genetic determinism. Um, and it was enough for an entire book. Wonderful. Great, interesting answer. And I love it. And I totally agree with you. 
I've been a practicing Buddhist for 27 years that is based on the law of cause and effect, quantum physics, quantum mechanics, noetic sciences, and I've been on this path for most of my life. And this is why I love your book, Train Your Mind, Change Your Brain, which is all about neuroplasticity and all the research. Please share with me and our audience how you feel about medicine, science, religion, and spirituality collaborating together for the betterment of humanity. So at least two, if not all, three or four of the fields that you just mentioned, Marina, are often portrayed as antagonistic, if not you know, as at loggerheads always fighting. Um, obviously, science and religion are often cast as outright enemies. The genesis for Train Your Mind, train, Change Your Brain was a meeting that the Dalai Lama held in Dharamsala, his home, of course, in exile and the home of the Tibetan government in exile. And the Dalai Lama, um, in addition to being the spiritual head of Tibetan Buddhism, of course, has in recent years become extremely interested in sciences across many, many fields, but in particular neuroscience, partly because of the consonances between what Buddhism teaches and what neuroscience is learning. Um, so my own you know, view of uh, you know, science, religion, spirituality, faith, etc., um, is that they absolutely can cross-fertilize one another, that one can learn from the other, and that to dismiss, you know, in the case of Buddhism, 2,500 years of scholarship um, is, I think, the word arrogant would probably come to mind. Um, and I'll just give you one example. So um, I defer to you on the, uh, you know, the true understanding of Buddhism. I'll just tell you a teeny bit that I picked up from some of the people who were kind enough to help me with the book. Um, one of the things Buddhism teaches is that as we are, so shall we become. The idea that we have a say in our own unfolding. Um, and it turns out that that is very resonant with some of the discoveries in neuroplasticity, which, you know, the simple version is that as we act in the world, as we have experiences, as we have thoughts, as we feel, all of those things act back on who we are through the brain. So whenever, um, again, a, an, an ancient system of, of scholarship and learning, namely Buddhism, intersects with something that science is learning in the 21st century, you know, you can't help but be fascinated by that. I agree with you 100%. I love your answer. And you kind of answered my next question, which was, what are the similarities between Buddhism and science from the Dalai Lama's point of view and from science's point of view, if you want to add anything more to that? Right. So really, the, a key one is the idea of becoming, um, that we are not static, that who we are in the future um, is at least partly up to us. And that is very, so let's just look at what science had told us about the brain up until a few years ago, which was basically that after the ripe old age of three, um, the brain we have is the brain that we always will have, um, that the ability to change and structure and function gets lost after, you know, after basically we're, we're toddlers. And when you think about what a dreary, pessimistic message that is, um, you know, it's really quite striking that, um, you know, if we are 
beset with a with a mental illness, um, it's going to be very, very difficult, if not impossible, to overcome that, again, because the brain doesn't really change after we're three or so. Um, even something like, you know, personality, um, which yeah, scientists ascribe to brain and brain function. Um, and the reason scientists thought that was that because the brain, as far as we can tell, is the most complicated structure in the universe, the possibility that it could change in any fundamental way seemed not only impossible, but a really, really bad idea. In other words, if you started like to take a screwdriver to this amazingly complicated brain, surely any change that you made would be detrimental. It would be for the worse. Um, so the default opinion was that the adult brain cannot change in structure and function in any significant way. And that really was the dogma until a few years ago. Um, and I'll just emphasize that that was a belief. It was a dogma. It was not something that emerged from from experiment, from empirical uh, evidence. Um, it was almost a, you know, this is what it should be like, therefore we think that's what it is like, and that, of course, is not really the way science should operate. Um, but it really was so strongly held that overturning that dogma took a, a, a number of years and just the accumulation of study after study after study, but finally it has indeed been overturned, and that's the revolution in neuroplasticity that you alluded to. Right. i got to tell you something funny. You keep answering my questions before I even ask them, which is I was going to ask you to elaborate on the hardwired dogma, and you did. Is there anything okay, else you want to add to mind, that? We have a mind melt going here, Marina. Yes, I, we I do. <laughs> We're in the intracellular holographic matrix. You're just exactly. going into my brain and getting my questions from me <laughs> and answering them. You've done it twice now. Okay, keep going. <laughs> I'll just say one other thing. So in terms of... Um, you know, Buddhism and science. So the Dalai Lama tells a uh, interesting story. He, as I said, has been interested in neuroscience for a number of years. He, of course, travels the world, and he was at an American medical school uh, a few years ago, and he was invited to watch a, uh, a brain operation, neurosurgery, with the consent of the patient, the patient's family, etc. So he watched this, and after it was over, he was having a conversation with the neurosurgeons. And he said, you know, my friends who are neuroscientists have explained to me that our thoughts, our emotions, all the output of the brain, um, they're, they're really um, electrical signals, um, the result of chemicals, you know, attaching and detaching and just sort of wandering around the brain. Um, and he sort of understands that. He, he accepts that the idea of the, the brain as a chemical and electrical entity. But here, here's his question, he said. If electricity and chemistry can produce these wonderful things that we call thoughts and feelings and memories and everything else, might it be possible for thoughts and emotions to act back on these physical things, electrical activity, um, chemical activity, and affect them? That was his question. And the neuroscientist, the, the brain surgeon, said, no, 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 totally impossible. The arrow of causality points in one direction and one direction only. Chemistry and electricity lead to thoughts, emotions, etc. But thoughts, emotions cannot act back on the physicality of the brain over and, over and out. And um, the punchline, of course, is that as um, more research was done, it turns out to be quite possible for mere thoughts, and I'm putting mere in uh, quotation marks, Marina, 
to act back on the physical stuff of the brain. So, uh, you know, I don't want to get into um, a, a, a sort of a cage fight between the Dalai Lama and brain surgeons, but at least in that case, um, he was right, and the uh, yet another dogma of brain science was wrong. So that, that story always tickles me. That is lovely. Well, I love the way you say you don't want to get into trouble or whatever. Well, I can tell you with my work, I see it happen day or 24-7 almost, that I work on someone's emotions and I work on what's holding that belief for them, get rid of it. Just worked on someone last night with cysts in her spine, literally removed two cysts from her spine with one belief. And, I w- and she's going in for surgery today. And I said, I think you might be interested in what your, doc- what your doctor will say to you today when you go there. So it's kind of interesting, right? Well, it really is. Let me give you one of my favorite examples of this. Um, so there was a study done at Harvard Medical School a few years ago. And it was uh, leveraging some of the findings that the experiences we have can alter the wiring of the brain. Um, And one very common example was when we learn something. Of course, learning is encoded in the brain through stronger connections, through rewiring. Um, And one of the things we can learn, of course, is how to play a musical instrument. So research had shown that when you do before and after imaging of the brain, usually with MRI or fMRI, Before someone learns, we'll take the example of playing just a simple keyboard, playing the piano, um, the brain has a certain appearance through an MRI. And then in the experiment, um, volunteers learned a very, very simple five-finger keyboard exercise. And they learned this over and over. They practiced and practiced for several hours a day for a week. And at the end of the week, um, the MRI was done again, and it turned out that um, the area of the brain that controls the five fingers, um, most of the, all, all the volunteers were right-handed. Um, there was greater activity there, the strength of the synapses, the connections were stronger, and actually the region that controlled the five fingers had actually expanded. So with greater use, um, a region of the brain that is responsible for that use actually gets bigger. But here's where the punchline comes in. So there was that finding um, from people who had, as I said, done these um, keyboard exercises for a week. The next experiment, the scientists had people come in, and they looked at the sheet music. They looked at the very simple keyboard exercise, but they did not play it. In fact, their hands were constrained, um, so they they, they could not play on the keyboard. They just looked at the sheet music over and over and over again, and they imagined playing it. They imagined their fingers dancing over the keyboard and producing these notes. So again, the setup was before and after fMRI. Um, Take the imaging before people imagine playing this keyboard exercise, and then after five days of that imagining. And you're probably way ahead of me. um, What the result was is that people who had only imagined playing this keyboard exercise had the same increase in the region, in the size of the region of the brain that controlled the fingers as people who had actually played the keyboard exercise. So in that case, imagination, thought, mere thought, do we, you know, are we silly enough to say mere thought anymore, 
had produced a physical change in the brain analogous to that from actually engaging in, in physical activity. Um, so that's the kind of thing that um, has very much startled neuroscientists, and it gives a hint, or at least raises the question, you know, how much else can our thinking alone do in terms of the changes it produces in the brain? I love it. It's wonderful. And I've read a lot of incredible studies with that. There was one study with a basketball team. One team just rehearsed, 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 and practiced and practiced and practiced. And then one other team just meditated. That's all they did. They just imagined winning. They never practiced. Guess who won? Well, exactly. And the same thing is now being um, parlayed into... Um, visualization for all sorts of sports, you know, for golf and for tennis, you know, just visualize a forehand or something. Um, and indeed, the, the, the neuroimaging is showing that, that produces very, very similar brain changes as actually doing, you know, whatever sport um, is being studied. Um, whether that can also work for non-sports, for non-physical things, that's a very, very active area of research. Um, but I think the the take-home message is that really scientists have sold the brain short. Um, they just, you know, said it can't do this, this cannot happen, this cannot work, you know, a long list of can't, can't, can't. Um, and really, surely if we've learned anything, it's let's not just assume that there are these limitations. Um, very likely there will be limits, but let's find out what they are and not impose them um, a priori. Yes. I Well said, and I'm almost speechless over that because, you know, what happens is um, a lot of times I see things being shut down by a lot of scientists. So when I was reading your book, there were parts of it that brought me tears to my eyes and I really, it had me sobbing. And just what happens to some of these doctors, and we'll talk about William James, he's one of them, you know, that have come out with these, they think outside of the box, but they're only a psychologist. They're not a neuroscientist. And when he came up with his thought processes, that was in 1890, 1890. And he was so open-minded. And all these brilliant doctors and scientists are open-minded. And they have that beautiful, childlike curiosity that doesn't shut things down. And that's why your book really touched me because of all the beautiful research that was in there. And it was just beautiful. Because if you jump off that and then do more research on your own, you just go, wow. Because there's been so much hardship and struggle for these pioneers. Don't you agree? Well, Marina, you make an absolutely um, essential point that Obviously, in science, um, you have to take chances to discover what no one has before, but even more crucially, to ask the question that no one has asked before. Um, on the other hand, when you do that, when you stick your head up above the crowd, um, it's a lot easier you know, to get slapped down. And mm -hmm. I talked to a number of scientists who were the early pioneers in showing again, that the adult brain retains its power of neuroplasticity. Um, their papers were rejected by journals. 
Um, they had trouble getting funding for this research. Um, and again, it wasn't that, as you know, when a scientist has a, a study and it's submitted to a journal, it goes through peer review in which editors and other people in the field read it, assess whether it was done competently, etc. So when the reviewers were reading some of these um, submissions, the reaction wasn't, oh, you, you did this wrong or the statistics are, you know, incorrect or anything like that. It was, no, this is just impossible. No, it, this can't be. <laughs> um, and, it, you know, time after time after time, these researchers were rejected. Um, and to their credit, they kept, they kept at it. Um, and that's why you'll find that many of the seminal papers in adult neuroplasticity, including of the human brain, are published in journals that you've never heard of um, because these papers could not get into the top journals that, you know, reporters always write about. Correct. Yes, yes. And while we're on this subject, Dr. Edward Taub, with uh, his findings with stroke victims, you know, from all his research from 1981 to 1991, you know, and everything that that poor man had to go through and now well, he's, yes. at, he's at the cutting, a, cutting edge of the forefront of a revolution. Now, that's a fascinating um, and very sobering story. Um, I know. So I look, you can I see the sadness through. in his eyes. I'm sorry. I can just see the sadness in his <laughs> eyes. Everything that man had gone through, the pain. Yeah. All right, go, Sharon. Sorry. Well, I was just going to say that stroke, of course, is... Um, it's something that happens usually to the elderly, um, and people would look at the damage in this, uh, a brain that has suffered a stroke and say, well, you know, there's just no hope of recovery. So the stroke rehab community would acknowledge that sometimes um, brain, uh, blood flow can be restored and there could be a little bit of recovery there, but if... We'll just pick, pick a common example. Let's say the left motor cortex, which controls the right side of the body. Let's say the left motor cortex is, da is damaged. The result would be that the right side of the body, at least part of it, would be paralyzed. And if uh, movement did not return within a few weeks, maybe a month or so, the stroke experts would say it's not coming back. That you know, uh, unfortunate. Will 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 the rehab will focus on uh, teaching you to work only with the good side of your body, the the, the spared side of your body. Anyway, so what Edward Tubb, who's at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, did first with um, primates, monkeys, and then with uh, human stroke victims, he showed that you can train the brain so that the absolute other side, in the example that we're using, the right side, the, the undamaged side, can take over controlling the right side of the body. So again, in the usual setup, the left side of the brain controls the right side of the body. The right side of the brain controls the left side of the body. But he showed that there are rehab techniques that will teach the right side of the brain to control the right side of the body. It was completely, uh, totally not how, um, how brain scientists had understood human capabilities. And uh, boy, I mean, the stroke rehab community did not want to hear this. And, you know, Marina, when I've gone out and given talks, whether to um, women's groups and book groups and, and everything else, I would say there has not been a single time um, that someone has not 
stood up at the end and asked a question along the lines of, my mother, my father, my grandmother, my whatever had a stroke and was in a rehab center, and they totally did not use the therapy that you just described. It's called constraint-induced movement therapy. And unfortunately, that is the case, because even though the research has been out there for now, boy, at least a decade, um, unfortunately, the rehab community is many, in many, many cases, in too many cases, just very, very set in its ways. And your loved one, you yourself, would really have to fight to get this therapy. Um, you know, trying to turn around scientific thinking is like turning around the proverbial aircraft carrier or something. Um, and it really does not speak well of either the medical or the scientific community because obviously we're talking about lives here with people who are paralyzed um, and who could, in fact, be helped. Right. Right. I mean, he did incredible research. Uh, he's at the forefront of the revolution right now. He's won awards. And yet he, the hardship and struggle that man went through, and you can see it in his face, you can see it in his eyes, is uh, quite shocking. So thank you for what you just said That It was wonderful. So I have a question for you. And that question is what I really appreciated in your book. You said a few years prior to 2004, neuroscientists would ne- not have been part of the conversation with the Dalai Lama. Yeah. Let's chit-chat about that, shall we? <laughs> From both ends, really. Um, and by that, I mean, um, we were alluding earlier to the fact that uh, science and faith, all faiths, many faiths, are often at loggerheads. Um, you know, scientists, Western scientists, um, had been, and in many cases still are, at least a little bit suspicious of what the faith community is up to. Um, they didn't quite understand the Dalai Lama's interest in their work. Um, they were suspicious that he would somehow co-opt it and say, oh, Buddhism discovered this 2,500 years ago, Um, which, you know, yes, there might be some harbingers of what current neuroscience is learning in Buddhist teachings, but they're not exactly identical. So there just was a reluctance to engage. Um, And the Dalai Lama and the scholars around him changed that in two ways. One was that he has actively encouraged the monks, the lamas, the other adepts around him to volunteer for neuroscience experiments. Basically, volunteer your brains for these studies. And that, as you would imagine, has gone a long way to um, you know, repairing relations, or at least improving relations with neuroscientists. And the other is that um, Western scientists, not only neuroscientists, he's also very interested in physics, um, have seen just how serious he is. They have seen that he is not trying to say, oh yes, Buddhism understood this, uh, you know, two, two millennia ago. So there's just been a much greater respect. Um, you mentioned, Marina, the Society for Neuroscience um, in your introduction. Uh, you know, there's no stronger uh, imprimatur of respect, authority, etc. in the brain science field than the Society for Neuroscience. And they invited him to be one of their main speakers at their annual meeting a few years ago. Um, so there's nothing more mainstream. Um, and I think that just speaks volumes about how the suspicions have 
at least been lessened. Um, I won't say that every single scientist, neuroscientist, physicist now wants to embrace um, this other way of thinking, um, let alone specifically the Dalai Lama. But bridges are being built. And, you know, really, why would you not want to learn from, in this case, a community that has been trying to understand the brain and the mind for 2,500 years. And that is one of the things that's happening when monks and others volunteer for some of the studies, um, that because they are adept at meditation, for instance, neuroscientists are simply finding that there's an awful lot that they can learn by studying these monks' brains. Mm. It's such a gift that the Dalai Lama is giving science and the medicine, medical field. I loved your article, Wall Street Journal, Dalai Lama helps scientists show the power of the mind to sculpt our gray matter. Where I want to go with this, His Holiness the Dalai Lama always had one question for the scientists, and he continuously inquired provocatively, asking the same question over and over and over again. Can the mind change the brain? And his question was always dismissed and undervalued. What is your perception of why the scientists finally listened and heard? What do you think really t- was their turning point? And you may have just answered it, but if you want to elaborate a little more, yeah, no, please feel free. Um, I wish it could, I could say that it was just pure open-mindedness and, um, and openness to other ways of thinking and knowing. And there might have been a few um, for whom that was true. But really, if you're, as a field, what neuroscience is looking for is empirical evidence. And it was the slow drip drip of studies like the, the piano exercise one that I described before, where there were findings that thoughts that the output of the brain, let's call it the mind, can act back on the physical structure of the brain. So once that dam broke, um, then there was much greater willingness to answer yes to his question. Yes, the mind can change the brain. We're seeing it. Um, I'd say the other reason for the reluctance, Marina, is you know, if you ask scientists what is the mind, they will almost to a person say it is what the brain does. This Cartesian dualism that the mind and the brain are different things um, that will not get you invited to any neuroscience meetings. Um, so <laughs> the idea that um, they are separate, that you know you should think of them as one acting on the other as opposed to just one being an expression of the other, that really did not go over well. Um, and I don't want to take a strong position on that question. I'll simply say that even if we think of the mind as being what the brain does, then let's acknowledge that what the brain does can act back on the brain. Uh, correct. Your 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 environment is a reflection of you. If you don't like your environment, change you, and you will change your life. There's exactly. no separation between you and your environment. Correct. Exactly. Um, and that's now being um, uh, used in so many areas. Um, you know, mental health um, and others. We mentioned the stroke work, um, and really, it's um, we were talking earlier about limits. We don't know what they are, um, but before we say that something cannot be, uh, is not amenable to neuroplasticity, you know, it, I mean, that's an answerable question. Maybe not today, 
but it's answerable. So let's not say it's impossible before we've really tried to ascertain what is possible. Correct. Sharon, we have ran out of time. I want to thank you so much for coming on the Quantum Connection radio show. You're such an amazing gift to me in the universe and all of her people for your incredible translations, transmissions of science that you give to the everyday person. It was such a pleasure, such an honor having you on the show. And I'm so grateful to have this slice of life with you. And I'm so positively blessed to have our show documented in our treasured, precious archives for our future listeners. Thank you it's so much fun, for Marina. coming. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after our messages from our sponsors with questions and answers. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. Do you feel alone, even when you're surrounded by others? Do you feel that there's sometimes nowhere to turn and nobody really understands? Remember, you are not alone. Every week, host April J. Ford, who has faced adversity as a constant in her life, helps you rise above life's challenges with your own blueprint meant to help you find out who you are. April's challenges have included childhood sexual abuse, becoming a widow and single parent at 32, and other such curveballs. She'll help you every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. The Voice America Live Events page is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480 294 6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Our world is shrinking. We get information across the planet as fast and as easily as across the street. Lately, it seems as if none of it is good. The world has become so addicted to negativity, fear, drama, and our kids are learning fast. Are you worried about your teen? Do you know where they are, who they're with, and what they're really up to? Power of Peace Radio tackles real issues that are changing the minds of the next generation. Get involved in the conversation on Monday evenings with Kit Cummings. Pop Radio is about interrupting and redirecting those who are on a dangerous course and bringing light into dark places with powerful topics and real stories. We bring hope to those who need it most. Because hope is the new dope. Power of Peace Radio, Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Empowerment. Find out what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel, voiceamericaempowerment.com. You're listening to Quantum Connection, exploring health, science, and spirit with Marina Rose QDNA. 
To reach the program today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to info at marinarosequdna.com. Now, back to Quantum Connection, exploring health, science, and spirit. Welcome back, everyone, to the Quantum Connection radio show, where we do explore health, science, and spirit to accelerate your path to extraordinary living. The telephone lines are open for you to call in, so please feel free to call in 1-888-346-9141. International callers, 001-480-553-5754. And you can also email me at info marinaroseqdna.com. So as you know, QDNA, quantum DNA acceleration, is based on the four pillars of health. Neuroplasticity is one of them. Same with epigenetics, DNA programming, and quantum field theory. This is the way to change your DNA and instantly change your life. This is the way to unlock your emotional, creative intelligence. And this is the way to take control and recreate your genetic destiny, which also includes taking control of your financial genetic destiny. QDNA is about retraining and reprogramming your brain for success in all areas of your life. It is the fast way to track. It's the way to fast track your life to success now again, in all areas of your life. It's an ancient Vedic science meets quantum modern science to balance, heal, and transform. We are connected to everything, everyone, everywhere, just like we would, Sharon and I were discussing. You are part of the universe. There is no separation between you and the universe and your environment. This is a very old Buddhist concept. It is quantum physics. Quantum DNA acceleration is about creating a lifestyle in all areas of your life that is under the one umbrella of quantum living in the quantum realm where we utilize the intracellular holographic matrix with what science calls the field, where we decode, reconstruct, reorganize, Recode the mind and body for limitless manifestations and healings. And one way that we do that is with neuroplasticity, which is one of the four pillars that Sharon spoke at length with us, with wonderful insight and wonderful research and information that is in her book, Train Your Mind, Change Your Brain. I want to give you just a quick quote from physicist Sir Roger Penrose. He said, The human brain is the most outstandingly complex structure in the known universe, more complex than any galaxy. And that's what we're dealing with when we're talking about neuroplasticity. When you do anything, and I mean anything, here are a few examples. When you think, move, speak, dream, sleep, exercise, Even love, it all happens through the complex neurofunctions of the brain. The most revolutionary findings to come in the recent years has been the 
discovery of the human brain can actually change itself, what neurologists are now calling neuroplasticity, a term that refers to the brain's ability to actually reconstruct its physical and genetic characteristics. Also, it reorders its functional anatomy from top to bottom solely through the act of focused thought and training. Oh, we've got an email. Okay, I've got an email from Laura in San Francisco. Can neuroplasticity work with getting me a husband and building my business? I need help in both of these areas. Well, Laura from San Francisco, neuroplasticity can definitely help you with getting a husband and rebuilding a successful business. If you wanted to do sessions, you could do two completely different sessions because they're two completely different topics. If you wanted to work on this alone, you may want to meditate for a week or so on one subject and see what comes up for you. And then when you've got some answers on that, I would recommend meditate on the second one, on getting a husband and seeing what comes up for you. Because the blocks are within you. They're within your construct. They're within your beliefs. That's why we do offer sessions. Um, Also, if you need more structure, you could come to a workshop in L.A., that I'm having on October 19th with Malika Chopra. It's about QDNA quantum intentions and manifestations. It's a business success workshop. And Malika will be talking about her book, Living with Intentions, which is a continuation of everything that Sharon and I talked about today. So you can also call me. So you've got, um, you can contact me via email, which you just did, and we can set something up. Okay, good, good. All right. So we were talking about neuroplasticity and it refers to the brain's ability to actually reconstruct itself physically with genetic characteristics. And it can actually do this from top to bottom solely through the act of focused thought and training. Neuroplasticity derives from the word root, the root words neuro for neuron and nerve cells in our brains and nervous system. Plasticity is the word plastic, a reference to being changeable, malleable, modifiable. It's a term that perfectly describes the brain's capacity to change, reprogram, and recondition itself. So it's pretty awesome. The astonishing discoveries in the field of neuroplasticity have ushered a huge paradigm shift in neuroscience on par with what occurred in quantum physics after more than a generation in which the biological materialism held neuroscience and in fact pretty much all life sciences in a chokehold of the mechanical reductionist models of the brain. The latest findings in neuroplasticity has finally shattered that point of view. Thank goodness like, because it was like doomsday. Just think about what Sharon and I were discussing. It was like doomsday. You were stuck with the same genes. You were stuck with the same DNA. You were stuck with the same beliefs. Neuroplasticity gives us freedom. It gives us freedom to create what we want, when we want, and how we want. And it's unlimited. So there's approximately 1.1 trillion cells in our brain, if not more, Each single brain neuron has 
from 1,000 to 10,000 connections with other neurons, making up 10 trillion neuron connections or more possible. On an average, the brain passes around information at the speed of approximately 260 miles per hour. With the positive synaptic pruning of trauma, depression, or any other issues, I believe that those connections can travel way faster than 260 miles per hour. Okay, we just got another email. Okay, this is Francis in Boston. How do I take what you and Sharon have spoken about today and use it in my life? Well, great question. So you could do a couple of things. You could start off with self-practice of yoga or meditation or any other mindful contemplative practice that will assist in quietening your mind. Quietening of the mind is of the utmost importance. This is when you'll be able to hear your own brilliance. This is what we, you know, Sharon and I were talking about, these brilliant doctors and brilliant scientists that think outside of the box. They are listening to their own brilliance. And that does come from quietening the mind. So that's something you can do at home. If you have a specific issue and you'd like assistance, again, you can, we could do a phone session um, in person or over the phone. And if you are coming to LA, I do have an event. It's on the Voice America website. It's also on my website, www.marinaroseqdna.com. So hopefully that helps you, Francis. So remember, the brain is like a computer. Sometimes your computer slows down when you have too many program applications open or the program applications are corrupted. The processing capacity is said to be 10 to the power of a million different ways it can wire itself. That number is off the charts, guys. It's 10 followed by a million zeros. It's an infinite number of possibilities. Don't you want that? I mean, that is amazing how many different ways the brain can rewire it. It's unlimited. And you heard me earlier say to Sharon, which she wrote about Dr. James in her book. In 1890, Dr. James was the father of experimental psychology in the U.S. He came to his own conclusions about organic matter and the nervous system having a degree of plasticity, meaning the nervous system and the brain. From his lecture series, Pragmatism, Conception of Truth, lecture number six, which was Pragmatism, a new name for some old ways of thinking, he states the most ancient parts of truth <laughs> once were plastic. So how's that? It's pretty awesome. So Dr. James was only a psychologist, not a neuroscientist, but you've got to remember there were no neuroscientists a century ago, and his research never went anywhere up until just recently. Now people are looking into his research. So one of Dr. James's thoughts back in 1890 and, and um, his comments were, were scientists able to alter neuron paths to excite the ear so it activates the visual cortex, which then activates the auditory ortex, vo- uh, cortex? 
his thought process was that we would be able to hear the lightning and see the thunder. Well, science has now done many experiments that have proved his theory about auditory cortex can learn to see. Just one of the many very wonderful discoveries. So welcome to the world of qDNA, quantum DNA acceleration, because this is where we reprogram and remove all the conflicts that you may have in your mind that hinder your health, wealth, happiness, joy, success. We have outstanding, outrageous success with neuroplasticity. And I just want to say a big thank you to all the wonderful doctors and scientists who have done such beautiful, curious work of a child and who are so passionate for the betterment of humanity with their incredible research. Because if it wasn't for them, that validates the work that I'm doing, qDNA, quantum DNA acceleration, we'd still be back in the Stone Ages. That's why Dr. Fanning is so important. That's why we've got Dr. Dawson Church, he's so important. Also, Sharon Begley is so important. These people and all of our, all of our guests, they are extraordinary influential thought leaders that really validate qDNA, quantum DNA acceleration. We know what you've gone through and we just, I, I, I know what you've gone through. I can feel what you've gone through and I have so much gratitude to you all. If you're in LA, come to the Malika Chopra event. It's on my website. You've got the website. Thank you so much for listening to Quantum Connection Radio Show. I love connecting with you all. Thank you, Sharon Bagley, for being my guest. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Lots of love, Marina Rose, QDNA. Thank you for enjoying Quantum Connection. Exploring health, science, and spirit with Marina Rose QDNA. Please join us again for another edition of the program next Tuesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Change your DNA, instantly change your life. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.